Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. Weekends are better when you spend it with us. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to the second hour of Weekends Sunday edition. It's been a, goodness me, Mike Netta. Do you reckon we need to get him a little bit more sugar in his coffee? It's wonderful that he's so motivated and uh, can provide such entertaining perspective on what we're witnessing and watching out there. It really is a crazy caper, isn't it? And it's nice to know that no matter where we are in the world, when we think a certain way, we all seem to think the same way. I don't know about you, but I just can't come at the idea of paying 80000 bucks for an EV hatchback and thinking that I'm doing anything but lining the pockets of those that want me to play down this particular crazy world that we're in. I mean, there was Trump today in Virginia giving a speech talking about the Green New Deal, and he called it the Green New Scam. Just seems that why is it that when the virtue signalers take over the economy, you get extorted no matter what it is because you're doing something wonderful for the planet? Does the planet really need to do that? And does the planet really need to tell us that 0.04 of what is it, four parts per million of carbon dioxide? Heaven forbid if it gets to five, that will all get together and the other 99.9999% of the air out there will suddenly just heat up and therefore it's all to do with the carbon dioxide emissions. It's just so ridiculous to think that the hive-minded world is the way that it is. Well, in this hour, in a moment, I'm going to introduce you to a brand new guest, Dr. Dennis White. He's written a book, a phenomenal book called Philosophy for the Human World. And we're going to talk in some detail about what's going on. You can see it there on the screen. Just incredible. I discovered the book only recently. And uh, just by looking at the table of contents that was available uh, from it, I said, this is a book that I must read. And uh, it was one of the best things, decisions that I made in terms of that. I have to say that I do love on the weekend show that we're able to bring new guests and spend the time because we've got a little bit more time to get into the nitty gritty of what people's work that they're doing in, in so far as understanding and the deep dives. And it takes a form of a long form interview to be able to get to the root of uh, what it was that somebody went and uh, created a career for themselves, decide to write a book about the human condition and spend a, certainly a, an incredible amount of time doing so. And that's why I've invited Dennis onto the show. We're just having a few problems in the background. It's part of the, uh, the technological age that we're in that not everyone is uh, is up to speed and I'm the same every time I, I get ready to do a show I can almost feel the weatherman saying over there at the Oldbourne house let's go and put a storm over it so we can interrupt the internet it just seems to the, the way of the world at the moment so we'll get to Dennis shortly but um the, the idea of the book is to approach what it is to be human, what humans do individually and collectively. But when we get into some of the, uh, the, 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 the the actual literature, what Dennis has written, you'll understand that it really does paint a very, very different perspective. And in many ways, it was a perspective for mine this week that kind of got me a little bit off kilter because I realised that no matter what we do uh, against in this, in this information war that we're in, where we can almost see the finish line with the collapse of the West an empire one way or another due to their own ineptitude, their own corruption. Well, what comes next? And will the people en masse uh, resist the collapse? Will they be shocked by the collapse or will they embrace it? So there are differences of opinions there that make a really big, big difference in how it is that the world shapes itself. Because at the end of the day, it's just the humans 
There's no one else making any difference as to our lives so far. Nobody can tell us that uh, somewhere in the last, in our lifetimes, for example, that a supernatural character came down to earth and changed it in any certain way. No one can tell us that someone off planet arrived and convinced us to go a certain way. No one can convince us that an animal suddenly got um, uh, to become a human aware, for example, had a consciousness and said, this is the way you're going to do it. It's just us. And that's the point of the exercise. And I think that's what Dennis's work is, is really all about. He describes the human condition from the point of how we measure all things and those measures and what it means. He talks about machinery and the machinery in general, the types and the influences of, that it has. And of course, that relates to another very important issue is artificial intelligence then talks about the groups, uh, the, the dynamics of groups, the effectiveness of groups. And then we get into politics, people, the nature of politicians, the impact of politicians, the role of government, and puts it all together in a remarkable way. It's a 400-page book, and every single word is beautifully thought of and constructed. And it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful testimony to how it is that we as human beings can work out exactly what it is for us that makes the most sense. And of course, along the way, the institutions that we come to have to lean upon, well, that's a tough word, isn't it? It's almost like we're forced to lean our, on our institutions because we get weakened by those institutions that are all about their own power. That reminds me of George Carlin when he says to us that, uh, that it's a big club and uh, you, oh, me, ain't in it. And uh, government is only interested in one thing, more power for itself. And when you realise that, you realise, hang on a second, isn't the government just the people working for the people? How is it it becomes a separate entity? And when you realise that, the power of authority, the power to tell us what exactly it is that we want in our lives or have to have in our lives is the reason that we have to go along with their system, which again, makes no sense. It's why many of us say, hang on a second, I just want my autonomy. I just want to be left alone. I don't want anyone telling me that I've got to be forcibly injected to save someone else. It makes no sense to me. And what is it that you put in those injections anyway that says that I can even trust you in the first place? Is it safe? Is it effective? Is it even, uh, are you going to tell me what's in it in the first place? Who would have thought this week that when Dr. Julian Fidge went to the federal court and wanted to take on Pfizer and Moderna in that particular case because he had taken the vaccines. He was a doctor and a pharmacist. He'd given the vaccines to family members. He'd given it to his patients. And he realised that the GMOs were not authorised. Federal court judge simply said, no, we, you have no standing, which raises the question, who has standing? How can anyone not be able to sue the person that, or, the, or the company that provides a medicine that, first of all, is not fit for purpose, does not meet the criteria, and the judge says, no, nah, you just got to do it and, uh, and, 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 and we'll protect these corporate entities. It's a shocking, shocking set of events and turns, and it's no reason why we have to start digging much deeper in understanding how it is that human beings think. If we truly are in the Great Awakening, something that has come about since 2016, possibly earlier, 2015, and I will refer you to my interview yesterday with Dave Hayes, the praying medic, Terrific, terrific interview uh, with Dave. Uh, we got into a lot of the detail from quite some time ago, eight or nine years, in fact, and we went back and, and, and both of us had an almost photographic memory of what's going on. And I know you do too. And that's the point in, in this situation. But if we are in a great awakening and it doesn't seem to be waking up as quickly as we thought, then what exactly?
exactly do we do about it? And that's the reason why we have to have this, this, this new examination of who we are as human beings. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Dennis White. He runs his own strategy planning consultancy called Stride Consulting, with clients including industry bodies, governments, universities, schools, and private businesses. He worked as an advisor, speechwriter, and director in Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser's private office designed and taught courses on democratic theory, issue analysis, great political thinkers, and methodology while lecturing in politics at Monash University. He was also executive director of the Trinity College Foundation Studies Program, a pathway for international students to the University of Melbourne during its formative years. His published work includes a book of the philosophy of the Liberal Party of Australia, a monograph on political power. But today we're going to talk about a brand new book, a brilliant book called A Philosophy for the Human World. Dr. Dennis White, welcome to Weekends. It's very nice to be with you, Jason. Thank you for the invitation. Dennis, it, it is an absolute uh, delight. When, when I discovered your book and when we got in touch, only to uh, to read through it, I have to say, and uh, it, it has all the makings of a masterpiece. I would obviously like a thousand other people to read the book and come back and agree with me so that I can make that claim. But it, it's just such an important work at an important time in history. Um, what What motivated you to say, you know what, at this time in my life, I think I need to write this book? Jason, it started um, many, many years ago. Um, in 1979, in fact, um, when I'd been lecturing for about 20 years to hundreds of first-year politics students at Monash University um, on, a sub on a subject that I called Great Political Thinkers. And I had chosen... Uh, a dozen great thinkers from Plato um, and Aristotle at one end to Marx and Mill um, in the 19th century. And I used to circulate to these students about 20 pages of extracts from each of these thinkers' works. And then I gave them a couple of lectures um, trying to explain their views and their possible relevance um, to current politics. And it was a fairly popular course, and I loved doing it. And year after year, I would reread these thinkers and try to think what they um, had to say. And at the same time, I was writing various papers. But I was always talking about what other people thought and uh, looking at their starting points. I mean, Plato started off with. Um, the idea of the goodness. And uh, Mill started off with the idea that freedom is important. And Augustine started off with the city of God. And some people started with natural law. And I had a year of study leave in 1979. And I decided that instead of trying to follow the thought of others and develop it, I would try to work out what I thought, having been trying to explain what others thought. Um, so I sat down and spent the next 14 months without reading any books or talking really to anyone much um, and tried to work out what I thought. And um, after a couple of months, the idea that humans make ways of life 
came to me as a fundamental idea, a fundamental notion. I'd been moved by Descartes, who found a starting point in the famous cogito, I think, therefore I am, was what Descartes started with. And I was looking for my starting points and the idea that we make ways of life because um, it is a key notion, I think, in our the experience of most of us. And then I somehow thought that while that was right, it probably wasn't enough. And then the idea came to me that humans are on their own, um, really meaning that they're responsible, not necessarily meaning there's nothing in religion, but thinking we are responsible. Um, we have to decide what we're going to be. So these I decided to take as my two starting points. And then I started writing um, and I spent the next uh, few months thinking out a series of chapter headings and the chapter headings are listed in that book. Um, um, I can't reel them off very easily. Um, and then I actually did nothing with that book for many years because people thought it was going to be difficult to get it published and it was seemed fairly complicated. Um, but I had this idea of a way of life in mind, but I did nothing with it. Um, and so I worked for Fraser and then I left the university and I started doing um, consulting work after um, after all that, and then I got involved with um, international education. And then one day I listened to President Obama's inaugural speech, and usually American presidents talk about their, their great union or something like that. But he said, we will not apologize for our way of life. And that struck a chord with me because that was my idea. And so I thought, well, I'll, I decided to publish it myself. And I did that as it was called the world of man, because at that time you could talk about um, that was a natural thing. That was the language back in the 1970s when I'd written it. Um, so I published it and it didn't sell very much. Um, and then I... As time went on, I still thought it was important. So I decided a couple of years ago that I would degender it, um, give it a new title, and uh, just check through and make sure that I could bring up to date anything that I could. Um, and then I sent it off to a publisher, and um, here you have the book in front of you. Incredible. It, it's just such a, a brilliant story. Every every author that's able to put in their heart and soul into something that means the most to them, such as you've described there, means that uh, we are privileged to be able to access uh, a line of thinking beyond the scope of all of us. I mean, this is the idea of interdependence, isn't it? We can't all have that ability, Dennis, to be able to have lived the life that you've lived and have the determination, therefore, to be able to say, how do I see the world? And I find a wonderful irony in the fact that it was Obama that prompted you at that point 
uh, in that speech. And the reason I say that, it seems that we've been apologising for our lives ever since, uh, one way or another. It's just uh, a very, very strange world. And I, I'm going to have to go to a break in a moment. But when we come back, we are going to dig into uh, some of the passages from the book uh, and to sort of um, delve into them a little bit deeper and I'll ask you questions about them. And uh, and I hope that this is, is just a nice way for people to understand the beautiful uh, thought that comes through the quality of your writing, of course, and that many people will want to reach out and, uh, and get hold of the book because it is one of those books that will change the way that you understand the world, the way that you see the world and realise that every single person has a role to play and a very important role because um, this is the beautiful thing about the human condition. In the meantime, if you love a good documentary, then you'll love our special screenings. Uninterrupted Cinema features some of the latest or notable documentaries from the world's best filmmakers. Check out TNT's website for more information. Weekends are better when you spend it with us on today's News Talk TNT. TNT's Steve Malzberg. January to November, he visited the home 35 times. Now, I mean, this is this is insane, of course. Uh, they say the relationship started in 2022. So what was he doing visiting our home 35 times or that proximity where her home was? The, the, the records apparently reportedly show that he would get there late and stay late, leave the early in the morning, like four in the morning at some sometimes, uh, call her when he gets home, that kind of thing, which indicates to the average person a relationship. Steve Malzberg on today's News Talk TNT. In other news, a recent government report on prescription drug pricing points to corporate mouth. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. What are you talking about, man? Look at his stats. It's about your right to be informed. Your right to access all types of information keeps us free as a nation. No, 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 no. Today, there are real threats to press freedom. And your right to know about the world around us. Look. Some threats are obvious, some are easy to miss, but they all put our way of life at risk. We must defend against all of these threats, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Justified putting American troops in harm's way. That's a great question. We must protect our right to know before it's too late. Understand the threats. Protectpressfreedom.org. Sitting comfortably? Oh, yes, yes. And I'll begin. Even when you're just sitting around, we're rocking the talk. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour, Dr. Dennis White, who used to be a speechwriter in the Prime Minister's office of Malcolm Fraser. And we're talking about his book, Philosophy for the Human World. Now, Dennis, I'm just going to read to you from your book about the particular, um, uh, what we're talking about before the break. Let me just get into it right now for you. Being on our own, the central thrust of saying that humans are on their own is that they have to be their own masters and mentors. In the end, humans have nothing to fall back on except themselves. The question of what is human life all about can only be answered in terms of what we do and think of people's activities, ideas, interests, and objectives. There is nothing like guidelines or standards to be discovered independently of ourselves. I find that that's just one of those introductory topics there, but um, it comes about from obviously a lot of self-reflection in a life that you've lived, but uh, can you explain it a little bit more for our, our viewers and listeners? I see it as a fairly simple 
um, truth that's hard to escape, that when we confront the world, when we pick up a newspaper or talk to friends, um, all we can do really is express what we think. Um, we can read what others think, um, but we have to interpret it ourselves. We can listen to what others say, but once again, um, I think it's almost um, um, so obvious that we find it a bit difficult to understand that we, um, what we think is what we think, um, and that we find words to express it, um, but uh, it is our thinking. Um, yeah, and I leave it at that. Yeah, I think so, because when I was reading it, the, the, the point that I wanted to get to here was that, for, for, I mean, if you're a non-believer, for example, then that, that is 100% accurate. But there would be people tuning in now saying, well, hang on a second, I have a very firm belief in in, in a higher power being God, religion, whatever. And and therefore, uh, they might argue that, um, that for them, they are guided in a different way. But my point that I wanted to circle back to that even from a religious experience, it still comes down to human beings sharing such information one way or another. So it, it, it always comes back to us. That was the point I wanted to make about that. Does that make sense? It does make sense. In no way um, do I think that what's in this book is um, incompatible with religion. Mm. Um, but what I and what I feel uh, and what I can't escape thinking is that um, when people believe in God and when they say they believe, it is their belief. Um, um, I'm not saying in any respect, I don't know whether God is there or not to be believed in or what is meant by saying that. Um, different people mean different things, no doubt. Um, it's a wonderful thought. Um, but uh, all I'm saying really is that um, we can't get away from the fact that it's our belief. Um, but the fact that it's our belief certainly doesn't mean that it's not true. Mm. Um, we have lots of beliefs that are true. Many of us have a number of beliefs that aren't true as well, um, but they're all our beliefs. <laughs> and, um, and well, I understand what you're talking about in relation to um, belief in, in God. Um, that's obviously a very special and a very profound matter for belief, um, or in some cases, non-belief. Um, but in a way, it's a simple point as I see it, that I'm making here is that um, we have um, the responsibility of, of, um, of developing our thoughts. Um, I did uh, once, in relation to the point that you've made, um, I have a very close friend um, who's a Jesuit priest, and we talk about these things a little bit, and he... Um, shivied me a little bit about this uh, section of the book. Um, and I said to him, well, um, 
um, I think it was St. Paul um, who said, um, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, and I said, I thought um, we were really being told there that it was up to us to work it out. Um, and um, he, uh, knowing the Bible much better than I did, um, said, but the words that follow that are, for it is God that worketh in you. Um, and uh, so I felt he did rather well in our discussion, but I thought we could both uh, make something of that point. And I hope, uh, I hope that listeners can understand that, um, particularly listeners who, who do have um, um, belief in God, that um, this philosophy, I think, um, operates at a different level from religious belief and is in no way incompatible with it or with its, uh, uh, with its truth. Whether, whether the beliefs are true is another matter. No, exactly right. And I think that's the point, isn't it? That uh, it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a non-believer. The work that you've done here uh, includes both parties to understand the human condition better. Now, I wrote some notes before, and it's unusual, but I'm going to read them to you again, because it comes down to the idea of collective belief, and the idea that collective belief is itself a fact. Collective belief is therefore preventing facts from coming to the surface, or inconvenient facts. Now, the point that I'm going to arrive at, and I haven't read it yet out, is that it's my right to be excluded from any attempt at centralised autonomy. In other words, how can I, how can we be autonomous as individuals, but somehow there's some form of centralized autonomy on top? And it might be a confusing term for people, but this is what I wanted, this is the point I wanted to make, was that right now the world is being pulled apart from what it once was, being shaped into what the deciders have in store for us, terms like the Great Reset as a result of the post-COVID era. The headline for this opportunity for the deciders who gloss over the origins of COVID, for example, like it is some in, something insignificant or meaningless, that we simply just look in the other direction of outcomes. And despite the facts coming out on almost a daily basis that they do not budge, not the World Health Organization, not the United Nations, not the US government, in fact, any government for that matter, to inquire to the origins of this particular virus that is being used to set up everything that this new world is going to be. Our own government in Australia is in fact in opposition to uh, to block an inquiry. It just doesn't want to know. And it just seems that how is it possible, therefore, that we can overlook these inconvenient facts as they were? Where did this virus come? The FBI telling us that it was man-made. How can we just look the other way and say, well, it is what it is. We just want to move on to a new world here. And this is the point of collective facts. So it's kind of like a human condition, whether we just simply go along with it to get along or whether we reject it. And this is the point of, in bigger terms, the point, therefore, of collective belief. It's 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 a real real world uh, application, I suppose, to to your writing. I was wondering how you might explain this in terms of autonomy and and, and the centralization here, perhaps even in terms of good and 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 bad government irresponsible or bad politicians. I feel that um, um, government is obviously an extraordinarily difficult task. Um, yeah. I couldn't help thinking if I can diverge for a moment, uh, Jason, um, we're talking at five o'clock on Sunday night. And when I was working for Malcolm Fraser, I discovered that he had a habit 
um, which he practiced throughout the 28 years that he was a member of parliament, that every Sunday night he gave what was called an electorate talk. And for five minutes on the Ballarat radio station, or it might have been 10 minutes, he gave a talk um, that anyone could listen to about how he saw the issues of the day. Um, as a staff member, this um, often ruined our weekends because it often take the uh, realise on Sunday afternoon that the world had changed a bit. And so we had to write a new electorate talk uh, and that uh, wouldn't be delivered at five o'clock that night. Um, but the underlying point that I'm driving at here is that um, the world faces a huge challenge of uh, government. Um, in the book, instead of writing a chapter on government, I did write a chapter on um, politicians, but instead of writing a chapter on government, I called um, uh, that chapter gone out of my head um the um let me give you some uh, of the chapters there dennis um i've got them in front of me actually um, I've got it too. The, the determinators yes the chapter and i call them determinators and they it includes government um but even though i wrote it a long time ago somehow i realized that there were other groups in in the world that determine um, what's going to happen. And you were talking about them just now. The World Health Organization is a very um, powerful body. Um, and one of the great challenges for humankind in our day is really to think very hard about what the role and the powers of those bodies needs to be how this, the world needs to be structured um, at that level. This book really um, raises all sorts of questions about, about how we are to structure um, these things and what the foundation, what the basis for um, structuring them should be. Um, and and of course, it's not very easy to derive from those two simple ideas that humans are on their own and that we make ways of life um, to move by a process of inference and argument to a view about um, the role of the World Health Organization or the powers it should have or how um, control over health matters should be organized in the world um, but uh, the value I think of the philosophy that's set out here is that it does suggest a starting point um, for considering those matters um, does that begin to provide an answer Yes, it does, because you also write that in making ways of life, we humans are neither wholly programmed nor wholly random in what we do. But any reduction, I would argue, in our individual autonomy reduces us collectively as well. 
this does not necessarily benefit the greater good, but the few. And I think this is this imbalance that we that we maybe talk about with um, you know the the weightedness perhaps of our institutions uh, starting to change things. Uh, and th- th- it's the process of 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 going along to get along, and the and and the lack of process of a resistance or an argument. What I'm getting in all of this is that in this strange age, this digital age that we're in right now, uh, where censorship is now practiced, we have, you know, the government proposing misinformation laws, despite the fact that they don't want to scrutinise themselves, therefore goes down this pathway that um, that censorship is, is, in many ways, would be the enemy of ideas. Uh, there doesn't seem to be due process in, in the idea of examining what people say that goes against what the government of the, the, the day might say. So th- this is part of, uh, of this idea of being able to to have an even-keeled conversation and at the same time not have your autonomy challenged as part of this censorship process. Um, this is, the, the I guess, the, the to and fro here in, in terms of your ideas, Dennis. That's right. That's right. Where's the balance? Um, and one needs to um, try to analyse the factors. And in a way, all that a philosophy like this can do is give a fundamental perspective from which to view these matters. And and if you think about them from the perspective of, of the what I see as the absolutely core um, notion and value that we humans um, make our own ways of life, it is an extraordinary thing that we do that, um, that we have that capacity, that sort of imperative, um, and there's that further truth that we're all aware of. I think that people die for their ways of life. They value them so much. They are a kind of supreme value um, that whenever um, the powerful or government or whoever um, might seek to challenge that or to weaken um, the extent to which we are able to make our own ways of life, or to the extent that it that it doesn't use the powers it might have to enhance our ways of life, um, then we're looking at uh, the fact that those bodies are going down the wrong track. Indeed. Now, um, we, we will have to take a break in a moment. Uh, there's a passage, there was a couple of passages that I want to read, uh, and, and I think that if I read it before the break, it's not quite going to um, to make a lot of sense. What we might actually do is take that break a little bit earlier. Um, right. In fact, we'll do that now, and then we'll come back, and then we'll get into a couple of these passages here. They're just, just profound ideas. So you are watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Mark Morano was certainly a national treasure. At least he is, in my opinion. We're blessed to have him here on TNT. Anyway, he runs Climate Depot. And Climate Depot is a great place to go if you want to really take a look at some of the lunacy that's going on here. I warn you, it's probably going to get your blood pressure up. CNN came out with a blog, How EVs Became Such a Massive Disappointment. Now, one of my favorite movies is Casablanca. And 
I love the scene at the end where the police captain comes in and claims he's shocked that gambling is going on in this particular joint that was being run by Rick, right? AKA Humphrey Bogart. Well, remember the words, I'm shocked, shocked that this is going on. Well, when I look at this CNN headline, how EVs became such a massive disappointment? I'm shocked, shocked that this is happening. Who wants to buy a car unless you're gonna putter around your house and it's like a glorified golf cart. I should say your neighborhood rather than the house. Who wants to buy that? Its battery is so heavy that it immediately puts excess pressure on the front of the car and your braking system. That's the first thing. Second thing, where are all the parts coming from? How are we making all these batteries? Just how are you gonna put up with having to take 40 minutes to charge your car? What happens if you happen to live where it's cold and believe it or not, despite global warming, much of the world is cold in their winter season. So I'm shocked, shocked that CNN has found out about all this. If you go to Climate Depot, you can read about it. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. JDRF's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes. The type 1 diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the type 1 diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the type 1 diabetes community, we're energised by the type 1 community, and we're accountable to the type 1 diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist, and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who's supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. The intersection of information and conversation. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour, Dr. Dennis White, the author of the book Philosophy for the Human World, I should say. Dennis has also been a speechwriter in the Prime Minister's office of Malcolm Fraser. And we're just working through some of these beautiful passages in the book and asking Dennis a little bit more about the perspective and the ideas where it comes from. And all of this comes back to understanding the human condition, who we are and our effect on our own lives and that on the world around us. Dennis, this particular passage I'm going to refer to now starts with infants grow towards ways of life. They are led and initiated into them. And some people never succeed in casting off these swaddling clothes. They never live a life that is all their own. They simply continue on, never acquiring any resources of their own in some path to which they have been accustomed. These are the people who never grow up. 
They're in a way parasitic upon those who do grow to maturity and then find that they are in a real sense on their own. In maturity, we humans have to fall back upon ourselves. It is not a question of solitude or isolation, for we are in the midst of a great deal, particularly if we are going all out in the general business of living. It is rather a question of independence, of superiority, of being the one whose business it is to be on top and to take charge. That for mine is a profound statement that I can almost concur in my life. But at the same time, I feel like just by saying that it will offend people who may be stuck in the mud in a rut and can't get out. But I don't think that's what it's really about. I think this is a reflection on human condition itself. Uh, and I wanted to get your perspective on, on, on how it is that you came to that and, and, and how you explain it, perhaps. I guess I'm not really sure how I came to it. Um there is a um, a comment in a writer, Michael Oakeshott, who um, um, a great political thinker uh, in the 1950s, who um, who talked about the fact that some uh, people are born old um, and other people never grow up, um, and it seemed to me there was some truth in that, um, and. I guess it was reading that. I'm just trying to think of the two examples he gives of uh, those people. One is Pitt, William Pitt, the younger, who um, was Prime Minister of Britain when he was 21, I think. Um, and uh, and Oakeshott says he was born old. Uh, he wasn't born. Um, and I've forgotten the, uh, the, the person who he instances, who... Um, uh, who never grew up, but um, people have extraordinarily different life experiences, and um, and I just I think it's the most extraordinary thing about about humanity and about being human that um, here we are, eight billion of us, um, all with our own lives to live. Um, all of them special in a, I'd, I'd have to say, a unique way to ourselves. Um, all of them different. Um, some people's circumstances make it very difficult for them to change. I think one of the great, uh, one of the most important facts about our current world is that there are far more opportunities available to people now um, than there were, say, 200 years ago. Not to everyone, but certainly in a society like ours um, and um, in, in probably most countries of the world now, um, there is far more opportunity, there is far more education um, there is far more choice. Um, I think one of the greatest um, contributors to freedom in our in our current world, the last hundred years, has been the motor car. It has given us the freedom to move in a way that people before had no conception of. Um, even though some of them did travel enormously. I mean, our population in Australia are um, 
since um, the last couple of hundred years has uh, come a long way to be here. Um, and of course, uh, the Aboriginals moved around Australia a lot, so they did a lot of travel in their own, uh, in their own right. But uh, I do feel that the motor car um, has been an extraordinary, uh, had an extraordinary impact on the fact of enabling people um, to develop their own lives. And I think there is uh, an increasing responsibility on those who look after education <clears throat> to try to uh, encourage people to, uh, to think for themselves in ways that uh, would have had very little relevance to what they might end up doing in earlier periods. Um, so um, I'm just slightly losing track of where we're going here. But, where, where, where I was going, uh, Dennis, in, in this is to go down the pathway of dependency. So it's one thing to realise and say, okay, well, yeah, that does make a sense. Maybe I haven't um, matured, as it were, in my life the way that, uh, you know, that this is pointed out to me and I've become dependent and I look towards the government for my answers. So, um, you know, people asking the government to provide more social housing, fair enough, but um, what's the barrier to entry to, to, to go from having to get private accommodation to going down and expecting the government to build more social housing? For example, I find that an interesting situation. Just yeah. as we refer to the to, to the motor car as a way that we're able to transport ourselves around and see more, because you would have to think that perhaps 150 years ago, some people would have been living in a, in a suburb or an area and never left it their entire lives. I find that astonishing when you think of it. But the quote to go back to the book, Dennis: "Irresponsible politicians may practice deception and foster disaster, or simply allow things to take their course with similar results." This illustrates the unwisdom of delegating total responsibility in anything to brokers. Humans can never abdicate the final responsibility for their own lives. In line with this, they must do their best to ensure that the brokers they turn to will do the right thing. Otherwise, their situation is grim and they must make the best of what may turn out to be the worst. There is nowhere else to turn if one cannot get a suitable broker and great powers are arrayed against one. This is the point, isn't it? it? Is that you can we can talk about government and and the responsibility that government has, but if we're getting a disservice for whatever reason it is, and some may argue that it's happening right now, and others may not see what's going on right now and argue the opposite. But this is the point that it always comes back to the human being as an individual, despite the fact that human beings change history by working more or less collectively, and this is the great conundrum. That's right, and. Um... And that's reality. Um, it's um, it's easy to identify the problem, in a way, uh, and the and to spell out the nature of it. What I do think uh, uh, would be extraordinarily valuable for the world would be if more attention and more brains, as it were, could be given. Um, to uh, improving our politics and improving our government. Mm. I feel that compared to what um, a profession like the medical profession or the farming uh, profession, fraternity, has achieved in the last hundred years or so, um, our, our 
politicos haven't done so well. And having been a teacher of political theory, I myself um, feel that I perhaps haven't done as much as I wish I could have, and uh, that I've perhaps let the side down by because um, it's hard to think that our politicians are all that much better, or our or our governments do all that much better um, than they did a hundred years ago compared to what medicos and farmers do compared with what they did all that time ago. And, um, and there is, I think, probably less teaching and probably less quality of uh, people doing the teaching. Um, in, uh, and of course, I'm one of them um, in a field like politics um, than in some other fields. So that's a particular implication, I think, of, of uh, some of the thinking in that book that we do need as a world, as a nation, but also as a world, we need to lift the game of government. <laughs> we're, we're floundering in government. Um, it is an extraordinarily uh, challenging task, the task of government. I had um, an ext extraordinary privilege of working for a man um, when I was working for Fraser, and he was he was a person of astonishing uh, calibre, um, and he uh, often gave us um, he often gave us things to do that were um, quite extraordinary. Uh, he wasn't didn't have a very good sense of how long it might take to do something, um, so often you didn't have a great deal of time to do things, um, but. He did uh, understand, and he's, he used to reach out for really good thinking. Um, and if I might tell a bit, a bit of a personal anecdote, one of the things that, that he often, uh, or that often happened when you, one worked in the office, an issue would arise, and uh, as an advisor, I would write him a note, often about eight or ten lines, half a page, with a few, with my views about what to do about this matter, um, or about the, the issues involved in it, and I would send it in to him, and almost invariably, um, about two or three hours later, um, the secretary would bring it back with his initials on the bottom, and, and I'd know that he'd read it. And I often didn't know what if anything he did with it, but occasionally, I wrote him a longer note. Um, I think in my time with him, I wrote four such notes. They were each about two pages, and I'd spent a couple of days thinking about them. And uh, the first time I sent one of these notes in, it didn't come back um, on that day or the next day. And uh, I was wondering what was happening to it. He didn't leave stuff on his desk. He used to carry a bag around. It didn't have all that much in it. Um, but I think it was actually two weeks later that this note came back with his signature on the bottom. And I realised, and I wrote a similar one a year or two later, and I realised that he'd been thinking about it. And it seems to me that there's not enough time and perhaps not the calibre of person always around um, who gives that thought 
um, to ideas. Um, and somehow um, we need to lift the level, I think, of, uh, of advice to our politicians, and they need to lift the level of appreciation and understanding. It is an extraordinarily difficult task, um, and we need to put more into it. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. Now, um, I, I want to, um, the, the story I was going to tell to sort of sign us out was that in 1982, I took a school excursion uh, to Canberra and we stood in the foyer of uh, Old Parliament House, which is what it's called now. And it just it just astonishes me to think that uh, who would have thought that 42 years later, I would be speaking to the then Prime Minister at the day there, his own speechwriter in, in, in a philosophy about human life. It's just an incredible story. And it just proves that, that, that there is something beautiful about this life that we are all blessed with. Uh, I just want to make one more quote because we've only got about three minutes left. You're right. While the philosophy which is developed developed in the course of this book is realistic, and while it inevitably sounds a number of warning bells, it is inherently a philosophy of optimism, before it implies that the mainsprings of civilization and development are always being renewed, always there to be revitalized. In the end, all these concerns come back to what human beings are, what that can be, can do and be, and above all, how they need to act in order to remain themselves and retain their powers. And in it's this primacy and preeminence of people that is reasserted and more fully explained in the book. Just beautiful, beautiful comments. And it, it just certainly means that human beings should never, ever, ever sell themselves short, short change themselves and real that realize that they have all the power within themselves, both individually as a start and collectively when we put that together. And I do wonder if government and politicians are ever going to improve themselves. It is to improve or to impress upon the rest of us that we are in fact very special beings the only ones on planet earth with human consciousness and awareness to do these amazing things and all that comes and starts dennis from the work that you have done um and that's the point of the exercise if you have it with you would we might put the, the the cover of the book up or if you have it yourself we might get you to lift it up there for people to see there it is the uh philosophy for the human world um, right there, Dennis White, and you can pick that up. Connor Court Publishing is where it's published. Uh, there it is. I think it's around $39.95, a beautiful, beautiful book. Dennis, um, th there it is. We've got it there up on the screen. Oh, but but, but that, that's the point there that I, I wanted to make, that it's just extraordinary that we have the ability, even in the toughest of times, to be able to make the best. And as you said, life and civilization and development are always being renewed and always there to be revitalized. Amazing, amazing thoughts. Dennis, we've only got about 30 seconds left. Do you have anything else that you wanted to add to that? Well, all I can say is um, uh, ditto, really, I think, because I absolutely agree. But the uh, uh, there is a huge hope for the world as we look at... Uh, at the young people of today and their their application and their cleverness and their their marvelous uh, imaginativeness on many occasions um one can't help but feel that the world is ultimately in good hands uh, as long as uh, as long as the rat bags don't uh, undermine things 
Yeah, how, how beautifully put. Dr. Dennis White, thank you for your time today. Thank you for writing this book and obviously the work that you've done for our country over a very, very long period of time from all perspectives. It's been a delight and a privilege to have you on Weekends with Jason Oldborn. Now, we're going to take a break for news headlines and then we're heading over to Iceland. One of my guests, Thorsten Siglason, will be here after the break to talk about some of the work that he's doing currently in the world of AI to bring light to what's happening in that world. And then he talks about the Tower of Babel, the idea that language, corporate language, is perhaps the way that we may be going down this very strange pathway. Don't go anywhere. News next here on TNT.